You're listening to the Startup Finance Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show entirely focused on helping you to build a financially fit and fundable business. On this show, we connect you with finance aficionados to impart their expertise to help your business grow. The Startup Finance Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcast to subscribe to this Startup Finance Podcast through iTunes and Google Play Music. This podcast is presented in partnership with MasterCard, a technology company in the global payments industry. MasterCard's global payments processing network connects consumers, financial institutions, merchants, governments in more than 210 countries and territories. MasterCard products and solutions make everyday commerce activities such as shopping, traveling, running a business, and even managing your finances easier, more secure, and more efficient. I am your host, Dr. Sean Wise, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. I bring more than 19 years experience in seed investing, including five seasons spent supporting CBC's Dragon's Den. I've published dozens of articles for Profit, Inc., and even Canadian Business, as well as several best-selling books on venture capital, entrepreneurship, and pitching ideas. Want to connect with me after this podcast? Join me at 100stepstostartup.com. We are thrilled to have Randy Cass on the show today. Randy is an investment portfolio manager who's been in the industry for more than 15 years. He's also the founder and CEO of Nest Wealth, has set out to pro- and as such has set out to provide an innovative fintech based on robo-advisors so that the investor can get more personalized and transparent wealth management solutions. Randy's previous company, First Coverage, won multiple awards as a top startup, including a Financial Services Morningstar Award for the best use of technology in Canada, all before it was ultimately sold in 2011. Randy also hosted Market Sense on BNN between 2012 and 2014, and most recently, Montreal's National Bank invested $6 million to onboard Nest Wealth's technology into their own portfolio management system. On today's episode, we'll talk about the rise of fintech and how technologies like robo-advisors are innovating the way investors are managing their portfolio. Welcome to the show. Randy Cass. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much, Sean. Randy, I, I want to start where we always start. When this is all said and done today, what learnings do you want our listeners to walk away with? It's going to become clear as we talk about what I've gone through, Sean, that, that to end up where you want to end up as an entrepreneur, you really need to pick your finish line at the start. And, and through a lot of trial and error, through a lot of getting it wrong with first coverage, through a lot of picking what's important to me and then sticking to it through Nest Wealth. If you can't figure out where you want to end up, I can guarantee that you're going to make mistakes along the way that are going to make it way more challenging you uh, for you to finish out where you want to. So so that's the lesson. It's, it's always good to think about how you want to start the company. It's always good to think about what problems you want to solve. But most importantly, have a clear objective and a clear finish line in place and then make all your decisions against the context of that. 
Okay, so let's ground that with an example. So Randy Cass, apply that to your own business, Nest Wealth. Where would you like Nest Wealth to be when the story wraps up? So let me give you an example that starts with first coverage, which as you mentioned in the introduction was was my first fintech startup and was a startup that we kind of accidentally started as I was managing money up here in Canada uh, and one that grew rapidly and that raised a lot of VC money, but being new to the industry as an entrepreneur, never having gone through the process before, when it came time to make a decision as to how we wanted to progress with the company, whether we wanted to sell the company or not, whether we wanted to buy a competition or not, um, by the time those decisions were made, I had lost control. I'd lost control of the board. I'd lost control of the ability to make those decisions. I'd lost control of the ability to control the direction of the company. And it was because I didn't enter the process with the desire or clear expectation that decisions I made had to line up with what I wanted to do, which was control the company going forward. So what Nest Wealth has done since day one is make sure that anything we do, any strategic investment we take, any business deal we enter into, any work we take on doesn't interfere with my vision, which is to control the ultimate direction of this company, to be the one who makes a decision about where we want to go, what we want to do, who we want to work with, and how we want to inevitably, eventually, perhaps one day, exit what we've built here. And it's that notion that I need to make sure that the deals line up in that way that makes it so important to pay attention to the dot and the I's and the crossing the T. So no deal we've taken on so far. Do we have different layers of shares? Everybody, everybody who has any shares in Nest Wealth has common shares and that's unique in the VC industry, unique among startups. Typically there are preferred shares and VCs have shares. And it's it's just always been for me important to make sure that everybody is sitting on the same side of the table and that control rests with those who know the most about the business. But controlling the business is a is a approach, a process, of a, a, a route. It isn't the end destination. What is the end destination from Nest Wealth? Are you looking to create a, a financial behemoth? Are you looking to exit in a way that makes your family and your investors lots of money? Because because keeping control is how you get there. But I love the idea of finding a destination and working back before you leave the garage. So when you look at the road trip that is going to be nest wealth what's the destination so so it would be it would be a lie to say that the destination we have in mind right now is the one we started with back in 2014 um clearly we can get into the journey and how pivots and changes occur but our our vision right now is that the entire wealth management industry is undergoing a vastly needed and long overdue evolution from a analog uh, opaque process to a transparent digital process. And there aren't a lot of financial institutions that have the wherewithal or expertise to do them themselves. Nest Wealth has spent the last two to three years building what we think is the best in class, uh, world-class technology level uh, engine 
that powers digital transformation for analog business lines and wealth management. And that is whether it's direct to consumer, whether it's B2B, whether it's as we announced recently, the Nest Wealth at Work Group RSP platform. So our vision is to be one of the leading global players that power financial institutions into a more transparent digital process. And, and obviously the benefits for them are they save on costs, it's an ROI investment, the customer has a better experience. As far as what the ultimate exit is, it's interesting that you say where we wanna be as far as do we wanna sell, do we wanna get rich, do we wanna build a behemoth? In that way, I've never picked that exact type of outcome. We've already had banks come to us and offer to buy us out, and we've said, no, we're not interested. We don't build a company to sell a company. We've, we've, everybody who works at Nest Wealth has heard me say that a million times. We don't build companies to sell companies, but we do make decisions that make us incredibly attractive as a target. So our goal has always been optionality, keep control, and deal with the options as they come to the door. We don't focus on maximizing the dollar value today so that we can be sold, but we do focus on making sure that we make smart decisions so that we have always a bunch of options and we use the best minds around the table here to pick which direction we wanna go through. I mean, everybody thinks about building behemoth new brand type companies, uh, but the truth is there's always gonna be a moment in time and if you're not a CEO and you don't recognize this, where someone shows up at your door with a silly, stupid uh, uh, amount of money, and, and it would be um, it would be uh, ridiculous not to think that entrepreneurs and CEOs would entertain that type of transaction at some level that all of a sudden makes sense for everybody. Now, Randy, uh, you were very successful in the wealth management space, and it is not common for the people who are successful to want to disrupt themselves. You know, uh, Blockbuster didn't launch Netflix. Netflix took out Blockbuster's business. Uh, Wikipedia didn't ask the Encyclopedia Britannica for permission. So you decided, even though you were doing well at what the system was, that you wanted to jump and disrupt that system. As you said, it was opaque, and it was... uh, you want to jump from where you were, which was a successful uh, industry expert, and you want to move to the disruption side. Why that change? Why did you want to disrupt the industry you were already succeeding at? Yeah, it was it was an interesting point in in my journey, um, for lack of a better phrase, where I had sold first coverage already. Uh, I had spent a couple years hosting a show called Market Sense on BNN, which is a Canadian business channel akin to CNBC. Um, if any Americans are listening right now. And what happened was um, I kept having CEOs and CFOs of the Canadian banks and CEOs and CFOs of the mutual fund companies and the regulatory leaders on the show. And the conversations for me would focus around not just the earnings that kept going up and up and, and the financial health of the financial institutions, which was strong and secure and powerful, but what are you really doing about the fact that Canada has the highest fees in the world when it comes to financial products or that we seem not to always have the in investors and best interest as our best interest. We don't have a fiduciary standard. What are you doing to improve the situation? Why, as your assets continue to grow into the hundreds of millions and billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions, are we not seeing 
economies of scale begin to reduce the fees that are being charged. And I, I just wouldn't get any answer that satisfied me. And between my personal journey of trying to figure out what to do with what I had left after the first business was sold and my journey on the show of asking those that were involved in the industry what they were doing to make things better and not getting an answer that satisfied me, it it was just one day the recognition that someone's got to do something. And for me, that something was building a product with the ultimate goal of letting the investors in Canada be as best served as they possibly could be. And that meant if there was a way to provide them with sophisticated professional wealth management that was more convenient, more transparent, lower cost, then I felt like that gap had to be filled in the Canadian marketplace. And and you know, as an entrepreneur, someday the calling just gets too loud and the ringing in your ears just gets too prevalent. You got to you got to go and do it. And that's what it was for me. And you've answered that call and have been doing it for almost a decade. So my question then becomes, what do you take away from that? You were a professional advisor. You were an employee, for lack of a better word. And then you go to, there is no cupboard with all the equipment. You have to share the bathroom. An entrepreneur wears all the hats. So was that something you were aware of or did did it overwhelm you in those first years? And looking back on it, what have you taken away from that switch from employee to entrepreneur? Yeah, it's funny. I joke with uh, my wife that I haven't had uh, a job in about 15 years. And she, she keeps saying, don't say that. But what I mean by that is I haven't had a job that I haven't created my own paycheck for in almost uh, 15 years yeah. now. And, and yeah. I can't, as I've mentioned already, the amount of times that we made mistakes at first coverage, um, which was that, that, that first startup in the fintech world from 2005 to 2011, um, were numerous enough to write many, many books on. Uh, but it, was I expecting, I was expecting the lack of resources. I was expecting um, the uh, the fact that I would have to do everything from cleaning the dishes to making the sales to hiring the people and, and growing a company from one person to 50 people, all that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. What I wasn't expecting in the first go around was how high the emotional highs got and how low the emotional lows got. There was just nothing that prepared me for the sense of impending doom that seemed to come from every single decision, whether it was going to be good or bad, or how Friday afternoon at four o'clock, you'd get a call all of a sudden that would just crush your weekend because it was bad news and there was nothing anyone could do about it till Monday at 8 a.m. There was nothing that prepared me for the emotional swings. Um, But when you got through it, and you look back on it, and really, it, it, it is only something that you can learn, I think, either you have the personality to deal with it, or you learn it, and you look back on it, and you recognize that no matter how high the high was, it didn't set the business immediately up for huge success, and no matter how low the low was, you still got through it all, and you ended up getting to a decent exit. Um, what we've done with Nest Wealth is been able to educate the entire company as everyone comes on, and and particularly from the top down myself, recognize that the highs really aren't 
all-encompassing silver bullets that are going to set us up for immediate success. And the lows are really things that we can power through and don't mean devastation or destruction. This The second time around is just such more of an even keel from the lessons learned that hard work, persistence, sweat, determination, all the cliches that exist are really the ones that matter the most. And if you just come in every day and you hire really smart, hardworking people and you keep the vision there where everybody understands what you're doing, um, you will get to where you want to get to. You you absolutely will. And that that's a lesson I learned from the first go around. Uh, I think there's a lot of listeners who are struggling with the ups and the downs, who feel depressed when it falls apart, who feel elated when it goes well, and who are having trouble the emotional side of it. You mentioned that one of the ways you dealt with that was to understand how the highs aren't the end all and be all and how the lows aren't really the apocalypse. What other techniques have helped you in those 15 years from just crying yourself to sleep every night? <laughs> um, it's it's probably something that you either have or you don't at this stage of your life or you're either looking for or you aren't. But I can't even begin to explain the importance of having the right partner. And I'm not talking co-founder. I'm talking actually spouse or partner as you go through this type of journey. Um, I have known incredibly brilliant, determined entrepreneurs that didn't have the support or the belief in their in their spouse or from their spouse that just that was that was the all important straw that broke the camel's back. And whereas there would have been success had they held on and had that support, uh, they just couldn't deal with the combination of the pressure at home with the pressure that was building at work. Um, I am so um, so lucky and so fortunate that I married well above myself and that my wife, Martha, has never wavered in her faith and belief and support in everything from the worst moments of the company to the absolute highs. She has uh, been someone that has always been there to act as both an escape valve for me when it comes to needing to talk about things and a support and someone who helps lift up in the down times. And, and it's so important because I, I remember I was once talking to uh, an acquaintance, someone I knew growing up, and, and he had had an incredibly successful entrepreneurial career. So at one point, he was uh, the youngest CEO of a TSX-listed company, and he had about 400 people under him, and the company was going gangbusters. And I bumped into him one day when he was back in Toronto, and we were talking. This was years and years and years ago when I was just starting out first coverage. So I didn't really have a good sense of what the world was about to become for me. And I said, geez, it must just be so much more exciting now that you got like 400 people and lots of money and everything. And he looked at me. And this is a really kind of A-type personality, driven, successful, nothing stands in his way type of person. And he said, to be honest, Randy, it just gets lonelier the bigger you get. And I didn't understand at the time, but I totally understand it now that the decisions impact more people. They become more meaningful. They become more significant. And there is a role as a CEO that you have to play when you come in that the things that are weighing on you, the things that are worrying you can't cast a pall over the other 30, 40, 100, 200 people that are in the organization. So you don't really have a lot of people to talk to. And for me, making sure that 
I always had that escape valve, someone to bounce ideas off of and someone who was able to be there in a non-judgmental way. Uh, to be honest, I think that was the difference between success and failure. And I don't think you're alone in that. I know from my personal experience that my partner, she's wonderful, and she is the grounding that allows me to do the risky entrepreneurial moves. I'm always amazed that we don't give out more startup awards to spouses. <laughs> it's so true. Because really, you know, it, they may take half of the wealth that's being generated, but they certainly shoulder more than half of the stress. Because unlike you and me, we make the decisions. They just have to nod and be supportive in a lot of those cases and provide a reflection. Let's talk about the business itself. We know from history, the last three generations of startups, that to truly be creatively destroyed, to truly lead to disruptive innovation, you need an exponential better solution. You can't just be a little faster, a little stronger. Tell me what's at the heart of, of your startup that is exponentially better to the old school way of doing it. Sure. So, so we have to go through a couple evolutions here. And, and the first one was uh, what was referred to by the media as the robo-advisor business. And this was uh, the direct-to-consumer digital investment platform. And, and up until these started rolling out, and the initial ones in the States were a couple firms named Betterment and Wealthfront, uh, really to get sophisticated financial advice or portfolio management or wealth management of any type other than being just kind of put into a high-fee mutual fund or doing it yourself, you had to live in proximity to a financial advisor. You had to have a certain benchmark as far as what your minimum balance was. It might have been 100000 a couple decades ago. In some places, it's up to 500000 or a million now. And for everybody else, they were left with one of two options. And those options were I was going to do it myself. And the vast majority of people would rather pull their own teeth out than manage their own finances. So that was an incredibly uncomfortable proposition for them. Or uh-huh. they were going to invest in mutual funds. And mutual funds in Canada historically have been the largest asset class. They're the elephant in the room. They own $1.4 trillion of assets in Canada right now. But the problem, as I've already mentioned, is that the average uh, the average management expense ratio or fee on an equity mutual fund in Canada was about 2.5%. And when you think about it, and you take 2.5% a year from what someone's trying to save, you end up losing. We did a study once, and it said the average Canadian investor, based on all, all the stats Canada's average numbers, would end up paying about $300,000 or losing $300,000 in wealth to investment fees and lost compounding over the course of their investment life. And that is an astonishing large number. It, it is larger than any other expense during your lifetime than your house. It's second. It's more than healthcare. Obviously, it's more than raising a child. It's more than education, cars, food, anything. And, and that was the alternative that existed for Canadians. The beauty about bringing um, digital wealth to Canadian investors was that all of a sudden, any investor, because almost all of it was now going to be done online, uh, the forms were now digital instead of paper-based. The signatures were now digital instead of wet. You um, didn't need to kind of drive down anywhere to meet a advisor. You had the ability to do this at your own convenience from your own home. You also then got uh, the best-in-breed type of portfolio creation and asset mix allocation. You were lo- using the lowest-fee type of products, passive ETFs that were prevalent in the marketplace. And you also, still in Canada, got a registered portfolio manager. It was like all of a sudden the best of all worlds, but at Nest Wealth, 
we came out and said, look, the services we provide don't change if you give us a million dollars as opposed to $200,000. So we're going to charge you a flat monthly fee like Netflix. We're going to charge you 80 bucks a month at the most. And we're going to charge you 20 bucks a month if you're just coming in with smaller accounts under 75,000. And all of a sudden that $300,000 that individuals were paying in fees, 90% of that now was going to their pocket. And we thought that was an exponential increase in value in the way people could save, in the ability to achieve wealth and dreams. And we were bang on. Like we have had thousands and thousands of people sign up and move. We managed nine figures, hundreds of millions of dollars into Nest Wealth simply because they don't want to pay the fees that they've been paying and they want a better chance at savings. You know, it's amazing. I don't want to oversimplify your business, but, you know, a decade ago, two professors from INSEAD published Blue Ocean Strategy, which said the best way to, to compete is to make your competition irrelevant. And the best way to do that is to do it a different way, to find value that you can add while lowering costs. Cirque du Soleil, the Nintendo Wii, they're all Blue Ocean. But I love your story because it's Blue Ocean. You save money on the human management. You save money on the paper statements. You make more value by giving you a personalized outlet and you empower Canadians. And now I may be oversimplifying it, well, but would you agree? Yeah, I, do, I don't I don't really mind when people oversimplify what we're doing here because I want Canadians to understand that it's their choice. Look, you can you can continue to say I'm fine paying two and a half percent a year for a mutual fund because I feel like I get the value out of it. Or you can investigate, educate yourself and say, look, I feel like a solution like Nest Wealth is is more than satisfactory and great for me. And, and we have not been surprised that the average client for our solution is 47 years old, about 160,000 in assets in Nest Wealth. We have people that have many millions of dollars in accounts and we have people that have $10,000 in accounts. For us, this is a solution that is needed by Canadians. And then the great thing has been not only have we seen huge adoption in the few years that we've been out in the marketplace with this, but because we've force margins to compress on wealth management because all of a sudden digital solutions are viable, realistic alternatives that large financial institutions need to respond to because clients are now saying, well, why am I going to pay you X when I can walk down the street and pay Nest Wealth 80 bucks a month and get a sophisticated portfolio and personalized service over there? We have seen the institutions within the industry turn around and say, all right, we need to offer a digital solution. We need to offer a lower cost solution. We need to make a better UI UX. And that generated the entire second business line of Nest Wealth, which was not only providing the direct consumer solution and service, but then turning around and licensing the technology so the entire industry could evolve. And those industry participants that had longstanding relationships with clients could start doing a better job of acting in their clients' best interests. It's amazing how not only have we offered a new solution, but we've changed the entire industry by being disruptive enough to force them to respond. Well, and I think the benefit is all Canadians. But you know what? We have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this. And I know mostly we've talked about some B2C stuff, how individuals can plan for retirement, generate wealth. You've just launched a group RRSP program for small businesses. And we have a lot of small businesses listening to us today. So 
tell me about that program and how entrepreneurs can not only leverage it, but incorporate something like it into their actual business model. Oh, so, so Sean, look, this is, um, one of the most exciting weeks that we've had at Nest Wealth because of the launch of Nest Wealth at work, the official launch yesterday. Um, we are always looking for ways to solve the big problems. And about a year and a bit ago, uh, when we were trying to figure out where we would go with the engine that we were building, uh, it came to our attention that there were 13 million Canadians that had no access to a group RSP savings plan or some type of way to save through work for their future. And we were we were shocked by that because when you think about it, what a group RSP or similar plan does is it takes money directly off your paycheck, puts it into a tax efficient retirement plan. You get the immediate efficiency of having that be a disciplined approach. And at the end, you also end up managing to connect the dot between where you want to get to and where you are today because it just becomes routine. It becomes Matter of fact, you learn to live without the deduction off your paycheck because every week it just stays the same and there's nothing you have to do about it. It is one of the most successful ways to end up reaching your financial goals. And 13 million Canadians, no access to it. And when we dug a bit, we realized it wasn't because they didn't want to offer, they being the CEOs and owners of small and medium businesses, which is when most of these Canadians were working, it wasn't that they didn't want to offer this type of benefit to their employees and show them how valuable they were through this type of benefit. It was simply because every solution that existed in the marketplace that they were looking at was either really labor intensive to operate, really resource heavy to manage, or had a ridiculously high fee because most of the industry in this marketplace are focused on massive, large institutions. So we sat down about a year and a bit ago and said, all right, well, how do we attack this? And it was really complicated. There were lots of regulatory requirements that were needed. Uh, we partnered up with some blue chip companies like Vanguard, who has a stellar reputation for offering best in class products in, the, in this type of market. Morneau uh, uh -huh. Chappelle, who has decades of experience doing the record keeping in this type of market. And we said, mm -hmm. if we could come out with a fully digital, easy to manage, no resources needed, um, low cost. And when I say low cost, I mean under a percent all in for the employees, free to the employers, instantaneous rollout. If we could do that, are you, Morneau, Vanguard, and our other partners in? And to a, to a person, they said, yes, this is an incredibly important value prop. It's an incredibly important problem to solve. So we spent the last year building it. And we were happy to announce yesterday that we have already had 200 small and medium businesses sign up. Nest Wealth at Work, in our opinion, is the most successful launch of any group savings product aimed at those types of businesses in the history of Canada. And what we have brought to market is our belief that any employee working for any employer anywhere in Canada has the ability now to start saving in an incredibly efficient manner for their for their work uh, for their future. And, and to learn more. You just go to nestwealthatwork.com. If you're an employee and you don't have a group RSP, you have one and the fees are ridiculously high as historically they have been, then you can learn more about it. You can let your employer know about this new solution. If you're an employer, you can sign up. It takes no time. It's just like signing up for a Nest Wealth account. You can sign up. You can send out the invitations to your employees. And within a day, 
You can offer up a free, no cost, no expense to the employer group RSP solution to your employees and have it up and running. And when every so this is really this is really for the the restaurant with thirty staff in Prince George. Sure. This is for the the small gallery in Halifax with its twenty staff. This is giving what large institutional organizations, the Ernst and Youngs, the Royal Banks, give to their employees. But because it's digital, you can give it at a, a lower cost. Am I really understanding that? Yeah, you, you are really understanding that because it's digital. We have solved both the problems of how hard it is to manage for a, a busy owner who doesn't have the time or expertise to manage a plan like this. And we have solved the problem of how to bring it to market at a cost that might be a third of what traditional small, medium business group RSPs typically charge the employees. And, and it is... Just like technology disrupts marketplaces, just like the direct-to-consumer business blew apart the walls and said everybody should have the ability to get sophisticated wealth advice and have sophisticated savings working for them, uh, not just the wealthy, this has now done the same thing in the group RSP space. It has said every employee, not just those working at large, big institutions, should have the ability to save for their future. It should be a right. It should be something that is almost mandated to offer. And we have now come up with the product that makes that possible. Wow. I think you've done a, a great job. We're going to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you about financial literacy. Uh, a recent survey last year came out and informed most people that they either weren't financially literate or they were barely financial literate. What, what role do you feel that financial literacy plays in the life of an entrepreneur, both on a day-to-day basis, but also when it comes to raising money? Uh, that's a really great question. Um, and my answer might surprise you. I'll deal with the easy one first. On a day-to-day basis, if you're an entrepreneur and you're a CEO and you don't know how to read an income statement or a balance sheet, and you don't know what your cost of customer acquisition is, and you don't know what your margins are, and you don't know what your almost to the penny bank account looks like, then you're not doing your job as a CEO. You need to be literate in the numbers to run a business. I am, I am, I will, I will stand up and argue that against anyone who thinks otherwise, if you cannot demonstrate how ultimately you will build a cash flow positive business, if you cannot demonstrate the levers that you understand how to pull, yank, handle, and move, then to me, you can't run a business. So I think you need to be financially literate, at least in those areas that I just mentioned, to be the CEO. And you can't rely on a CFO. For example, I still cut the expense checks. I still pay the invoices. I still manage the checks as they go out and come in, even though we're now kind of a 35, 40 person organization. And it's because doing that forces me to stay so close to the numbers that I know they're never going to surprise me. And I think that's so important for CEOs and, and often something that's not discussed. When it actually comes to investing, though, uh, Elaine Olin uh, wrote a book called Pound Foolish about three years ago. And it's a fantastic book. I can send you a link if you want to put it up when you put up the podcast. And, and We'd love that. it had a section about financial literacy. And, and what it demonstrated was that there was actually no correlation that existed at all between the amount of financial literacy an individual had and how successful they ended up doing when it came to investing their own money. And, and 
this shouldn't be that surprising since um, really the, the most attractive way that it's been demonstrated objectively to invest money is passively, which means that you don't try and pick stocks. And if you're not trying to pick stocks and the need to be literate and understand a lot of stuff doesn't become as important. But she also argued, and I think rightfully so, at least enough to convince me, that a lot of the programs that come out with financial literacy really are about trying to do the same thing as warning labels on cigarette packages did, which was to say, look, we're trying to help, but if they want to buy these products anyway, at least we can demonstrate we tried to help, which means they were a whole bunch of theater and not a bunch of, of actual impact. I think investing has to be boring. I think investing has to be a means to an end. I think when people try and look at investing as a sport, when they try and figure out how do I get to where I need to get to and what do I need to know now to be the one who knows much more, it becomes very, very dangerous and wealth gets destroyed. So I think Teaching financial literacy, understanding balance sheets, understanding income statements, understanding budgets, that's all really important stuff. But when it comes to teaching what stocks to pick or how to put together a portfolio, I think you're much better off just ramming home time and time again that if you don't control things that you can control, like fees and making your portfolio is diversified, which means that it's not all sitting in one stock. And and if you don't try and always beat the market, you're going to be vastly better off. So I, th- I think there are basic tenants. Teach what can be controlled and stop trying to educate people along the myth that if they only learn one more thing, they could possibly be the best investor in the world. I've never bought into that. Well, I would never suggest I'm the best investor in the world, but I've definitely learned more than one thing from talking to you today. Um, We're going to wrap up, but I wonder if you have any final words of advice for our listeners today, in particular, as they contemplate financing their own startups. You've successfully raised money for your business. You've you've had a, a few kicks at the can, so you have a wealth of experience. What sort of words of advice can you leave with them today? know when you're going to walk away from the table. And that goes back to the very first question you asked me about having your end game in mind. When we um, sat and negotiated with National Bank, who has been an absolutely spectacular investor for us, um, a great partner, an unbelievably uh, productive uh, business partner and equity holder, uh, we had very, very clear sense of what we wanted to get out of any deal with them. And, And for us, Walking into it made it an incredibly um, not easy negotiation. Negotiations are never very easy. There are always things that are going to pop up that lead to stressful moments. But it made it a negotiation where we could say, no, you know, from the get go, that wasn't something we would entertain. And they would go back and check their notes and say, oh, yeah, there it is. Day one, they said, here are the goalposts and a deal that we're going to strike has to fit within this. And it was the same thing with first coverage. With first coverage, there were a couple issues that came up right away. And and we weren't as educated about what we wanted and what we didn't. But we were prepared to get up and walk away from the table because the deal you sign, you're going to like it the most the day you sign it. And every day after that, it's going to be like a piece of new clothing where it's not quite as shiny as it used to be, but hopefully it just becomes more and more comfortable. And if there's something about a deal that you sign on day one that strikes you as not right or violating your principles or going against what you wanted to get out of it when you came to the table, uh, it's never going to feel better. So from our point of view, 
always know when you're going to get up and walk away from the table when you're negotiating, even for something like capital. A deal walked away from is better than a bad deal that you ended up signing. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to providing entrepreneurs with advice and experiences on startup finance. Want to access more resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca to gain access to support, resources, and events. And be sure while you're there to check out all the other original Startup Canada podcast series on the Startup Canada Podcast Network.